Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is the head of Yuki, Dr. Joe Twist, OBE no less. As we, we chat, you'll understand um, why Joe was, was given this honour, and uh, she's just, like, really, really interesting, like, a really fascinating history in, uh, from, from her childhood, like, growing up in, in, in Hong Kong, and her work on, on virtual worlds, and I discovered a new thing in this episode, which is uh, uh, cultural geography, which I, I, didn't, I didn't know that was even a thing that existed. Um, so the, these uh, podcasts are continuing to to increase uh, my knowledge and, and my love of video games, like genuinely. Um, as always, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email the show. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or forward slash checkpoints show on Twitter. I'm very close to 300 followers, so follow if you don't. Um, and it's forward slash checkpoints podcast on Facebook because it's very important to have consistent branding. Um, I generally don't use these little intros uh, to talk about much beyond, you know, get in touch with the show, rate and review it on iTunes, which is always very important. Please do do that. Um, so I figured I, I'm going to give a plug to a game because I talk to a lot of people about how difficult it is, you know, how, how discoverability is really difficult for people. And because I speak to a lot of devs, I can kind of, I get to sort of see that a little bit more uh, firsthand. Um, so there's just a, there's a game I've been playing recently which I haven't seen a lot of people talking about or it's not been kind of um, on any of the websites that I read or anything and it's absolutely amazing it's called 10 Second Ninja X I uh, most of you probably know about it it's on uh, Steam and PS4 I think um, I might might be wrong but it's brilliant it's basically like it's a very sort of relatively basic platformer and every level is 10 seconds long and you have to kill all the baddies as quickly as you possibly can, uh, and that's it. Like that, that is that is the game, and it's oh, it's so good. Like it, it kind of scratches that itch of of like the Trials uh, HD or uh, or Pac Man Championship Edition. The, these sort of games that I feel like I I can totally crack the code. It is possible to do this perfectly. I just need to know the exact right combination of buttons and timings and. Oh, it's really, really satisfying. It does rack your nerves a bit. And, and similar to Trials, uh, you get that kind of weird twitch where you automatically restart a level, restart a level, restart a level. Um, but oh, it's brilliant. And I would I would highly recommend you, you check it out. Um, I, I have no idea who, who made it. I have no um, connections. This isn't an ad or anything. It's just a game that I think is really good that no one's really mentioned much. Um, as always... Thanks so much for listening to the to the show. I hope you uh, enjoy it and continue to enjoy it. Please do tell a friend if you do, and the the Games Media Awards are still up. If you want to vote for us, that'd be cool. Um, otherwise, I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. Until then, let's get on with the show. Okay, well, 
we'll we'll, uh, we'll do a formal introduction for the for the sake of the show. So, Joe, uh, thanks so much for for taking the time out to have a chat with me. Um, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? I am Dr. Joe Twist, and I am the chief exec of UK Interactive Entertainment, which is the games trade network uh, that represents the UK's fantastic games industry in the UK. Did you know, were you not recently awarded an, an OBE? Do you not use that yet? Other buggers' efforts, <laughs> <laughs> as it's commonly known, and as my mother would have called it. Um, I, I, I was in the Queen's 90th birthday honours, which oh, was great for contribution. Thank you. Contribution to creative industries, which I was really pleased about because I did have a life before this job. <laughs> um, so you are the, the head of Yuki. So for people who aren't familiar with it, could you explain what, what that is? What, what do you do? Well, it's a, it's a trade body and um, all sectors have trade bodies, uh, which I didn't even realize um, before I had to, I got approached about this job. And we uh, we really provide a network of support and we do an awful lot of government lobbying and we respond to consultations that the government puts out and we try and make good things happen for the UK business environment for games and we try to stop bad things happening. Um, you know, things like unnecessary regulation. So uh, we also do a lot of practical support. You know, 90% of our members are very, very tiny companies and we offer them, you know, advice, legal advice through our members who are lawyers, um, accountancy advice, discounts to events, you know, taking them on trade missions to access international marketplaces. We try and secure funding for them. Uh, we apply for funding to put on things like uh, the London Games Festival, and we try and just make the UK the best place in the world to make and sell games, and we try and educate as much as possible, so particularly the media, because the media some, is getting better, but sometimes it they don't understand. A better, yeah. That sounds so intense, Joe. I'm exhausted just hearing the list of things of responsibilities. Uh, is it, it fun? Is Do a, you enjoy it, though? I, I, I love it. It is a full-on, full-time job for me, um, I, I, you know, I can work, I can work as many hours as I need to, and I'm constantly checking things. I'm constantly looking at the media. I'm constantly interested, and I think that really helps. That I'm just generally very passionate about this sector, um, and games, and, and and our creativity, and I really, really want to wave that flag wherever I can. So, you know, I have a lot of old friends and contacts in other sectors at the BBC and in TV and film and so on. And I just enjoy educating them and surprising them about how wonderful our sector is. It is wonderful. So let's let's explore that then. Let's go back. So Joe, um, if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? Well, I was very lucky to have been born and brought up in Hong Kong. I, I lived there till I was 10. And uh, this was in the 70s and I had a very bad squint. Um, I wore glasses, I was very freckly, I had very square hair, and square I hair. had... That's a good description. Yeah, you know, just sort of scrape, you know, just square ponytails. No, no, know, I can picture pe- it perfectly. That's a good description. Oh, yeah, freckly, you know, and and I, um, I I had to wear these horrible horn-rimmed glasses. And during the 70s, and, in, 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 you know, you, you got used to get, you know, the, the sort of see-through blue glasses i didn't have them i had the ones that would now be described as hipster glasses yeah. um 
but I had a very bad lazy eye and my, my parents took me to the optician uh, as I, they did regularly. And I was five in 1978 and the optician told my parents to get this new thing that was on the market called Pong. And I've actually got my uh, Optimum, I think it's called, uh, console in my living room still. And it had the little controllers that, you, that are cabled and they've got a little twiddly knob yeah. uh, in a lovely kind of 70s brown. And um, I played Pong. And they told me to play Pong covering up my good eye and to play it just using my lazy eye to exercise it. That is amazing. And so you were prescribed your first video game. Yeah, and I think he was a very forward-thinking optician. He was from Germany at the time. And, and, I, and I, uh, I, I misheard him as she needs a small operation. That she said she needs a small alteration. Uh, and it stopped me, prevented me, because I remember quite a few kids of my age in the 70s and early 80s had to wear plasters over their um, glasses. I, I so did that. I had that when I was a kid. Yeah, there you go. Plasters. So Pong prevented me from having to wear a plaster. I still had to wear my glasses, but it meant I didn't have to wear a plaster over my glasses. That is a, a much <laughs> better alternative, I have to say. Yeah, but then, but then I, 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 had, um, I got obsessed with Game & Watch. Uh, so those were Nintendo's first kind of handheld consoles. And they were, for the 70s, they were so high-tech, <laughs> as far as I was concerned. Again, oh, no, they were lovely, amazing, yeah. Yeah, diarrhea-coloured brown back, <laughs> uh, a, a little flip-out stand, which was very innovative, and sort of brushed brown aluminium on the surface and little orange buttons. I still and think they're pretty charming game. as, like, little objects. Oh, they I mean, are. They're really nice. Oh, I've got them displayed in my cabinet as well, in my living room. And, and it really appealed to that collecting mentality, which I think Nintendo has been really good at doing. So, you know, you collected them and used to swap them because, uh, although I used to cling on to mine because I just wanted to collect the whole lot. And I remember when the, the, the sort of um, widescreen ones came out. I mean, they were the really posh ones. But they, they, you had to buy a new one for every game. <laughs> it's yeah. it hilarious. It's weird because think about that. They were like ubiquitous in playgrounds growing up, but I don't ever remember anyone actually owning them. It was almost like this communal thing that got passed around. Everyone had a go yeah. on it, but... Nobody owned it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I definitely held on to mine. Um, and then and then I sort of, I've just always been interested in, in uh, I, I, I was very interested in creative writing as a child, and I used to just make up a lot of rubbish. You know, I didn't really, I was very influenced by, growing up in Hong Kong, you didn't have, I mean, growing up in the 70s and 80s, you didn't have access to much telly yeah. and other media. You know, but in Hong Kong, it was it was a lot of anime and manga. There was a lot of Japanese influence and Hello Kitty and My Melody and all the Sanrio products. And it was very, very international. So I had lots of different kind of cultural influences. At so the what time. was the... I came... Sorry, sorry, carry on. I was all right. I came back to Scotland uh, when I was 10. And then it all went downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a beautiful day in Scotland today. It really is. Um, Good. Genuine, like, I'm curious about, like, growing up in Hong Kong, because I, I'm assuming you would have gone to, like, a, a, an English school, so to speak. So did you, were games kind of a communal thing, like, between people? Like, did that help? Because it must be quite weird, like, for a kid growing up in a, a foreign country, essentially. So not really. The games that we played were just games in the playgrounds. You know, I don't ever really remember. Like, it just seemed to be my thing. I don't really remember sort of passing around Game & Watches in the, in the... I remember sort of bragging about stuff but I suppose my friend circle didn't really play game and watches um, I, I, I had a lot of girl friends 
and we just used to my favorite game that we used to play you know we would get told stories in the in, in the classroom and then we would reenact them um in the playground physically so we, we my favorite one which i just to this day just don't understand how we ever played was helen keller um <laughs> <laughs> i laughed far too hard there yeah we played that every play playtime um, so I, I, I what, what was the details of helen keller how do you play that well, exactly. You have to communicate through kind of touching and, you know, guiding uh, Helen around the playground. It was just. I mean, it is on. obviously in kind of gross taste, but it's also quite nice, you know, in general. It's, you yeah. know, giving empathy yeah, quite... towards what her life must have been like and all that. Yes, exactly. And then I spent a lot of time uh, as a solitary child. You know, we didn't really. Hong Kong was a really weird place to grow up because very 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 metropolitan um you know not a lot of green spaces and not a lot of gardens everyone lived in blocks of flats yeah and uh and i remember uh, you know i just remember my, <laughs> i just remember being outside a lot and grinding up rocks and making potions and you know <laughs> gr- yeah i you ground probably, a lot of rocks. Uh, you know open open a business in hong kong selling those kind of things you'd be laughing there's herbal, yeah, herbal remedy I'd... places all over the place yeah. yeah. So how was how was Scotland then? Was that a was that a culture shock? It was a culture shock. My mum was Scottish. My parents split up. My dad remained in Hong Kong, and we came back to Scotland. And I had this weird Whereabouts the same Scotland? accent I have now. Uh, we went. She was from Falkirk originally, but we moved to um, Alexandria, which is still not a particularly nice place. I'm sorry, anyone who lives in Alexandria. Uh, Balak is lovely. Loch Lomond is lovely. And uh, I spent three years at school there getting chased around the playground because they couldn't understand that I wasn't English. And at that time, I hated the English because my dad was English, didn't really like the fact, like, like my dad at that point. So but they called me Sassanat B. And I, I, was a, I was a pretty fast runner, so I never actually got beaten up. But I could not explain, they couldn't understand that, well, if you've got this accent because you grew up in Hong Kong, how comes you know Chinese? And uh, <laughs> I said, there are, there are people who live in Hong Kong who are not Chinese, okay? <laughs> and it was a, it was hilarious. I mean, uh, in, in retrospect, I'm sure, but at the time, I imagine it was quite harrowing. It, it was, but I don't know. I, I was a fast runner, like I said, yeah. you know. And, and I suppose it, it, that sort of died down. And I spent 11 years in in uh, Scotland in total. My, my 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 sister and her family are still up there, so I've still got family up there, and I still consider Scotland my home. And were games like? Uh, did you sort of carry that love with you back to Scotland? Because it would have been like I mean, the I home did. computer boom and stuff around then, right? Well, so I, I really, 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 really wanted a BBC Micro. Okay. Really wanted a BBC Micro, and I used to watch um, Games Master, and I I really wanted the BBC Micro. My dad was is still an idiot and he all my life promised me by this promised me by that because frankly my mum was a single mum and didn't have very much money at all yeah and she couldn't afford to buy one because they were expensive and i remember um my friend katrina uh she had a zx spectrum so whenever we went around to hers i used to go around to hers uh to play on the zx spectrum um but the tedium of waiting for tapes to load uh, and, and also there's two of you sort of battling over a keyboard. You know, it wasn't really um, designed for, <laughs> for kind of 
people who have very little patience like myself. Um, but I played games. You know, I continue to play games. Um, but I think it's more story worlds, although bizarrely I don't really like narrative games now. Yeah. But I love, I love story worlds and I love story. And I think text adventures uh, did grab my attention. Uh, but that was sort of later on when I started studying uh, virtual communities. That's um, not really like a communal to a couple of sort of teenage girls like yeah impatient especially like let me just sit and yeah. read together it's not yeah. exactly the yeah. most exciting it's not thing. no and, and 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 we didn't play those kinds of games anyway but it was you know i always wanted it you know i then wanted a zx spectrum and i still didn't get one i mean we, we we didn't have a vh you know we didn't have any of these things so it was a real kind of it, it was a culture shock in so many ways for me but were you invested um, enough to like say like buy the magazines or something like you know you just wanted to however you could experience that world you would no not really um i sort of started i got more into my my own creative writing more than anything and i was very outdoors uh, i was very sporty so you know i tended to do uh sports more than anything um so it sort of stopped it was always there in the background but it kind of stopped for me i would watch games master all the time i used to love that um, and remember, they, they used to sort of fast forward. Uh, they used to fast forward in the credits. Um, uh, that, that was code. actually a bad influence. Not to be a massive nerd, but it was bad <laughs> influence where they had they did like the blast at the end. I remember, and you'd, yeah. you'd sort of screen that, but, forward each bit. Yeah, and I used to just I used to just pause it. I'd record it and pause it just because I thought this was fascinating. I was like, what is all of this? Oh, and then, and obviously, yeah, and then obviously at school, you know, we 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 sort of learnt how to give instructions to a computer, uh, but it was deathly dull. I mean, it really was uninspiring. It was deathly dull, and it just didn't it didn't appeal to me. You know, I didn't understand what we were doing, why we were doing it. Yeah, which is a real shame. You know, things could have been a lot different, but there you go. I think they're much better now. Like you see a lot more sort of kids getting familiar with like simple coding stuff when they're younger. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, we lobbied. We got computer science onto the curriculum. Um, we lobbied through the Next Gen Skills campaign, which we ran, which was a coalition of lots of different companies, including Jaguar Cars, as well as all the games companies. And that, that was a really successful lobbying campaign that, you know, Michael Gove, um, believe it or not, uh, you know, took on what Ian Livingston in particular was saying and said, coding is a new Latin. So we need to get kids, we need to put this back onto the school curriculum instead of, um, teaching kids how to read technology, we need to teach them how to write technology. Uh, but the, the the job is not done. You know, there's still a lot of teachers Absolutely, who yeah. need the resource, and every class is different. My mum was a school teacher, and every single class is different. You know, and they're in different things that are going to hook in your interest. And a, a really good teacher will have a sort of armory of tools that they can use to deploy, given a particular class. You know, yeah. and they know that it's more going to be the creative uh, story bit, or or something that's going to hit them in. Uh, that's going to be different to next year's class. I actually so we, just, we, um, we work. No, sorry, carry on. Well, we, we we work through a project that we now run called Digital Schoolhouse to try and empower those teachers and to give them choices of of how they can teach fundamental um, principles of computing. So you know, learning about algorithms through dance moves or magic tricks um and understanding systems thinking at a fundamental level rather than uh, and at a young age rather than 
any particular kind of programming language, which once you understand the fundamental principles, you should be able to learn, you know, and self-teach, uh, yeah. as well as to understand why this language or that language, you know, work, just to pick up any tool that you can, that you want. But that must be quite, like, tricky, because it's, uh, as much as it's a generational thing, like, I don't, uh, I'm probably similar age to you, and I don't, I did some coding in school, but not much, and so I, I do have, like, a severe lack of knowledge when it comes to that. I know the basics, because I'm a bit of a nerd, but, like, I, it was never ingrained in me, so it's, it's kind of teaching two generations at once kind of thing. Yeah, and it, and it, it is hard. I mean, we were the same. We, we really were only taught, because at that time you had to, you know, uh, if you wanted to print something, you had to tell the computer what to do, yeah. and that is programming. <laughs> and, um, that's a set of instructions. But it was never really, um, you know, I think in the 90s, uh, when you had Microsoft word and, and excel that that's when it sort of dropped off in terms of what well, we don't need now to tell computers what to do through a series of instructions yeah. um which is where we want we need to get back to because you need kids to understand that they have power and control over uh, a set of instructions and agency um and and i think that's where that's where we need to focus you know we need to focus on how can they use this wonderful combination of code and creativity to to make these wonderful things that we call games yeah so what pulled you what pulled you back into games then if you if you kind of drifted away from them a little bit well i mean i i suppose i never really left them um but i just have multitude of interests and i did went to uh university did a degree in cultural geography at edinburgh and cultural uh, geography that's i've never heard of that before that sounds good yeah it's all about um really how space and place has created community. Uh, if you look at the way, particularly in Edinburgh, the seat of the Enlightenment and the whole sort of Enlightenment endeavour of, of going out and discovering the world and naming it and ordering it and putting a particular kind of set of order into, you know, even mapping, you know, the way that cartographers mapped the world. It was very Eurocentric view of the world because, you know, Europe owned everything at that point or the UK, Britain did, you know. And and it was it's really interesting to see how uh, that then uh, shapes your sense of community or your sense of identity and your sense of geography. And even in Edinburgh, you know, so we we, we, we would go out. We did a lot of my lecturers at Edinburgh uh, were feminist geographers, so it was about power and networks of power and how townscapes and cityscapes and urban environments can be shaped to regulate behaviour and to regulate people out of public space and public view as much as it is about putting people in, in you know, circulation, circulation of people. So you looked at, we did this whole kind of exercise of looking at the architecture of Edinburgh and where there were more sort of feminized spaces and more phallic symbols. <laughs> it was great fun because Edinburgh's full of phallic symbols. Uh, Man, and it's so, never going to be the same for me again when I go back. <laughs> and, and I suppose... Uh, at that stage, uh, in, this is probably in my undergrad in uh, about ni 1994, 95. We were the first uh, um, year to, uh, we had to word process our papers. Oh, no way. So the, yeah. So, and, and no one could afford a home computer. I think at that stage I did get a home computer, uh, but it was a huge monster thing. Um, what, uh, and but you didn't have Wi-Fi. You didn't have um, 
broadband at home. You didn't have internet access. You were lucky if you had dial-up. But it, but it, so you had to go to libraries and the computer lab to um, to word process your 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 essays. And you had to book in. It was an absolute pain in the neck. People don't know how lucky they are now. <laughs> um, but I started getting interested. There, there were internet cafes starting to open up all over Edinburgh. Okay. And um, Siberia was the first one in the new town. And then there were a couple of really lovely kind of quirky ones that opened up in the old town. One on Coburn Street, I remember. And I did my undergrad thesis on... I, I, I had done quite a lot of social anthropology within my degree as well. And I did an ethnography of internet cafes and compared them because I, I, I watched people in internet cafes and a lot of people I realized were playing games and they were communicating with this global community. So they were in public space and m most of the time people go into a public space or a cafe to meet other people in the cafe, but they were having this real privatized experience, but it was in a public space because it was in an online public space. So I did my undergrad thesis looking at internet cafes and compared them to 19th century Parisian salons and coffee houses. And what was going on was this sort of liminal space, this third space uh, between you physically located in this public space in Edinburgh and then also phys not physically located, mentally located in this form of public space online. And so I did a lot of interviews and, you know, it... It, it turned out a lot of people were playing games. And uh, I then um, was given a book by my uh, lecturer at the time, by my supervisor, a fantastic feminist geographer called Liz Bondi, who gave me this book called, uh, written by a feminist sci-fi author. I always loved sci-fi uh, as well, all throughout my, my life. I've always loved sci-fi. She gave me this book called He, She, It, and sometimes it's published under Body of Glass. And it's about this... Uh, very strong female protagonist set in the near future, uh, sort of environmental dystopia, um, and this older woman who lives her life in this virtual world. And I just, she said at that time, Sherry Turkle had written about uh, virtual communities, and so had Howard Rheingold, and a couple of other seminal pieces. But not very much at the time had been written about virtual communities. So I, I, she said, you should do a PhD. And I said, but I'm not very clever. And she said, no, 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 you should do a PhD. It doesn't matter. Just you're, 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 you're looking at something that not a lot of people are looking at, particularly in geography. Yeah. So I, I, I did. I, I, I did a MSc by research in Edinburgh. Then I went down to Newcastle where I got funding to do a PhD in online communities and identity. That is, that is super fascinating. Um, so did you, did you participate? Did you, I mean, I'm assuming you'd have to to kind of get the full experience. Yeah, I did an awful lot of um, field work. A lot of you do a lot of, uh, sort of research in the first couple of years, and then you start doing your field work. And the research I did, I looked at a lot of virtual online worlds, early days online worlds, a lot of muds and moos and text adventures and the well and all of these sort of online virtual communities and the otaku culture and all of this kind of background stuff, yeah. which I loved. Um, the funding that I received i sort of twisted it slightly so it was half funded by esrc which is research council at the time and bt and bt rnd were really interested in the late 90s in community networks so i had to focus my research around virtual communities but community networks so 
I looked at a particular uh, group of young people who were based in Newham in East London, who in the late 90s came together at this computer club, and they were all different, and I did an ethnography of their online virtual community habits. Okay. I also inhabited quite a few kind of chat, chat rooms at the time, and uh, I remember uh, this chat room that I got very, or online community that I got really heavily involved in, and uh, for about a year, I was quite a well-known sort of character there. That's where my name, Doctor comes from, by the way. Okay. So Toe has always been my online identity because I sat there thinking, right, I need a general neutral handle. Joe Schmo, Low, Fo, Toe, Toe. I'll do Toe. <laughs> so I was Toe. And I remember I then got too involved with it, too close to that community and couldn't use that as my case study. But when a couple of people on that online community, I got a, I got a webcam and it was one of those webcams that only updated every 15 seconds. And um, some of those people absolutely blanked me because they discovered I was a woman. On the way. <laughs> and, they, and they felt that I'd betrayed them, but I hadn't. I just never answered the questions of ASL, you know. Uh, I'd always say, old enough, yes, please, anywhere, you know, as a joke. <laughs> so I always evaded or avoided that question because part of my field work was about understanding how difference in identity works in but would they, online. Would they have known world. who you were? Like, I mean, obviously they didn't know you, you were a woman, but would they, were you kind of there in secret kind of thing, like doing research on them? Or did you say like, look, I'm here, I'm doing research into online communities? I, I didn't to begin with. And then as I realized that I got too ingrained in this community, I then would talk about my research and decided not to use them as a case study. So they knew what I was interested in and doing. A lot of them did, but they just didn't. It was, it was the fact that, you know, a couple of people who were quite close to me discovered I was a female and they thought I'd betrayed them. That is they just didn't horrific. get it. What was the, like, what was the, the community? Was it just a general, what, like, chat room type it was, thing? Or? It was actually, yeah, it was a chat room. It was actually associated. It was called Student UK. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a lot of, it was actually associated with The Guardian at that point. It's called Suck. SUK <laughs> and and it's now dead, long dead, um, and it was yeah it was it was just really interesting that they they that 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 was proving a lot of my yeah were you thesis. shocked by that? I was a bit shocked, particularly with one one person. I was shocked, and they just never talked to me again. And then and and then I sort of you know that community died down, and I I got more stuck into doing my ethnography of this group of young people and I went around with um, the, so the government's social exclusion or inclusion, I can't remember what it's called now, unit, who were looking at um, all these computer centres that were being created in places like Rotherham, places where older industries had died out Yeah, and you had uh, great pockets of deprivation and they were arguing that the information age was going to save them. Uh, but what they were enabling, my thesis was about, I, I deconstructed and critiqued Sherry, Sherry Turkle's work and to a certain extent Howard Rheingold's, but, but I really was influenced by him. And I said, look, you know, the problem with the computer centres that you're creating is that you're not allowing people to access online communities. And actually this gives you confidence. You know, through my case study, the kids that were... Uh, experimenting with who they were, trying to understand different perspectives. 
they had a greater understanding of difference and how important difference is to community yeah. as opposed to like-mindedness. Um, and, you know, what was happening in the computer centers was that they were just teaching uh, people uh, how to word process and how to, uh, you know, use a computer as opposed to how to access maybe communities of interest uh, that didn't exist in their day-to-day face-to-face life. Yeah, I mean, that that's... Uh... I mean, and it's kind of that that sense of difference, I think, is hugely important. But I think the perhaps the ubiquity of kind of social networks has kind of closed that down a bit again. I don't like I don't think people really (laughs) experience strangers on the Internet like they used to. It used to always be every every interaction was exciting. And they it's just so you don't bump into people anymore. Serendipity has been disappeared out of the Internet because of the productization of the Internet and why I, I have a really big issue with Facebook and I was thrown out of Facebook uh, in 2008, 2009. You thrown out uh, of Facebook? Well, I was banned because they, they, they closed down my profile um, because they said that I was using a, nick, a nickname because their real names policy, which I vehemently objected to because uh, I, you know, I believe that, that you have control over your online identity and part of my feminist geography sort of understanding theoretically about subjectivity and identity was very influential to me of how I conducted myself online. You know, we perform different aspects of our identities, of our subjectivity in different contexts, and that's okay, and that's fine, and that's good and healthy. And so you should be able to do that online. And, um, you know, I I I didn't want people searching for Joe Twist on Facebook. If you do that to this day, you won't find me. Um, and I got heavily involved in, you know, I was, I was magnetized towards social virtual worlds, uh, and, and I got really heavily involved in the community of Second Life, um, for that reason, because I found it to be this incredible canvas. I remember my friend Alice Taylor, she was a massive, uh, World of Warcraft, uh, uh, player, community member, yeah. guild member, and, uh, she we always try and get me to be part of the guild and I, and I knew what a time sink I was a journalist at this point uh, sort of skipping a few years I fell into journalism and <laughs> and uh, yeah I knew what a massive time sink that would be and I also couldn't I couldn't necessarily guarantee that I would com- be able to commit and 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 I chose Second Life instead which because that was more around what I was interested in, this yeah. kind of idea of this box world in which you can create anything you want and anything is possible. And no one needs to know where you are, who you are, you know, or, or, or one aspect of your identity. You can, you know, and, and, and at the time, I was, I was a technology reporter for BBC News Online. And at the time, you know, I was reporting on things like MSN ch- closing down their chat rooms and... Uh, you know, a lot of kind of moral panic about child safety online and, you know, this whole kind of narrative of, as a kid, you know, people are lying on the internet, don't believe. And I thought, this is actually the wrong message because young people have a very, very acute understanding. You know, even the young people that was in, were in my case study, they could tell through patterns of communication in the 90s when someone was pretending to be a child and yeah. they weren't. Um, and obviously that has got more sophisticated now and people are very clever about that kind of, uh, you know, grooming. And, and, and it is a dangerous thing. <laughs> I don't even want to get into that area. But at the time, 
you know, it was it was very interesting for me being with my journalism hat on and then also with my my kind of passion about identity online and about online social virtual worlds and the power of them. And so I left journalism um, at that point. I want to take a step back for a second because mm-hmm. it's quite interesting, the whole the whole um, idea of, you know, you, you perform personalities depending on the, the, the situation and stuff. Everybody does that. So as someone who was like really into games like did you did you bring that with you to like university and stuff you know because that's a big step you're meeting a bunch of new people and did you was that like part of your personality that you wanted people to know about in the same way you'd like play certain records and stuff when you move into a dorm yeah i mean i think i've always had quite a a a fluid idea of identity um personally just because i think I've had to adapt very much to very different contexts in my life. You know, that, that, that moment of, you know, I didn't realize we weren't going back to Hong Kong and having that real culture shock of being in Scotland, you know, it really, I've had to adapt <clears throat> very quickly to different kind of circumstances. As a teenager, I was very, um, I had a whole bunch of issues that I had to deal with. I was also sent to a boarding school because my dad had to pay school fees. So I was sent to a very posh boarding school in Edinburgh. And that brought along with it lots of other challenges because you met another kind of set of international kids and, again, lots of different influences and pressures. But I suppose at university, uh, I was, I've always been on the outskirts of different groups. I've never been wholly part of one group or another. I've always been able to be a chameleon and, yeah. and people sometimes I think think well that's you not being honest or people mistake fluidity in subjectivity and, and, and adaptability to being somehow not uh, not 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 kind of the real you there is no such thing as the real you all of these yous are real um, and at, at university you know you're thrown into a environment. I was in a, living in a student house, so I think there were about 15 of us. And you know, I always found people who were slightly. Um, I was never, ever, ever attracted to the cool people, or what I considered to be the cool people. Um, I was more attracted to the the the, the, the slightly weirder. Really cool um, people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and I guess. Well, at university, I played a lot of Street Fighter. Um, Street Fighter was just my go-to game at university. And I quite liked the empowering nature of Street Fighter. And I've always been um, sort of known for being pretty outspoken. And and at school, I was known as the feminist, which (laughs) I didn't understand at all. I just liked equality. But I liked Street Fighter. and I found my friends. I found friends who also liked to play Street Fighter. It's really good very Street simple. Fighter. I was pretty damn good at button bashing. Yes. <laughs> are you are you competitive? Just in in not I necessarily in life, but I mean in in games in particular, are you very competitive? No, in 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 games, in life, in every single thing I do. If I'm not good at it immediately, it really annoys me, and that relates to my sense of patience. You know, when we play games, we have play beer Friday every Friday at Yuki. And I cannot, I cannot, I, I don't like, I never like controllers and the complexity of controllers. Um, 
even though I started off with one button twiddle control controller. Um, I don't really, you know, it's, which is why I've gravitated more to um, uh, to tablet games that are made for tablet experiences, like you know the Room series, which I love. And I, I don't, I don't really take pride in, in in knowing the combinations of buttons. I don't, I don't give, a sh- I just don't care. Like it doesn't appeal to me. Um, so I am very, very competitive, and I'm not very good at first-person shooters. However, if you put me in, in a VR headset and you make me play a first-person shooter, I love it. Because I'm not, I'm not dealing... I played London Heist um, with the PlayStation uh, uh, VR headset, and I loved that. Because you, I've done away with the controller, I don't need to know that. I'm just pointing and shooting. <laughs> I mean, what you're basically saying is, is like, you know, you can, you can fight me in the virtual world, but in the real world, I am an absolute killer. So just don't yeah, mess with absolutely. me. Yeah, why do I? It does not compute, you know, this controller and shooting. Well, speaking of this, you know, you talked about being being impatient and stuff. I always like to ask people if they can remember their, their worst rage quit. Uh, embarrass- uh, embarrassingly, it will be games that are, you know, that that are actually really simple. <laughs> I mean, Some I don't cheery really mascot laughing at you as you stole yeah, out I of remember, the room. I'm not going to name the game, um, but it was when I was doing some BAFTA judging uh, a few years ago, and it was the family category. And so it's meant to be games that you play with your family. And I literally uh, threw the controller across the, across the other side of the room, <laughs> and it was a little bit embarrassing because my other half at the time said, you are taking this family and children aspect way too seriously because you are acting like a child right now <laughs> but but you know i've i've i used to so i can't drive i've tried to pass my test three times and i can't drive and i do get very very i, I got really into in the sort of early 2000s i got very into gt and I loved it because of the graphics. I just thought the graphics were amazing, but primarily because of the music. So a lot of games... Oh, yeah? Yeah. So a lot of games I started to gravitate towards were the ones that had really, 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 really good music and allowed me to do stuff I can't do. So I tried passing my test twice at 17 and then once again, third time, unlucky, about eight years ago, and I've just given up. So I I used to play with my partner. We used to have... um, uh, a, a, we used to have a big projector and a screen, uh, but we had a big telly. He was a real gadget freak, anyway. And you know, I bought him, ha ha ha, the pedals and the steering wheel. It was really for me, um, for to to play GT. And it, it, you know, I would get, again very very competitive, and this is probably why I shouldn't be allowed to drive. Um, so I have rage quit playing GT quite a few times because. You know, the music just keeps me, really, really makes me fired up. And that's how I discovered some of my favorite bands, in fact. You know, the, the music in Gran Turismo was amazing. And it's the same with SSX. So SSX Tricky, I played a lot. And we used to invite friends around uh, on a Saturday night um, just to play SSX Tricky, Gran Turismo. We played GTA as well. Yeah, so that is like the, the full-on early 90s PlayStation dream. That's that's the a marketer, like I, I spoke to... Jeff Glendening on the show uh, last year, and that was yeah. that was his whole philosophy was I want to make games kind of 
cool and for yeah. kind of older people. So you could sit around on a Saturday it. night listening to music and playing SSX. That's exactly what we did. This is exactly what we did. So we would invite our friends around because you, it didn't matter if, you know, it's just one person playing. You were still chatting, um, you know, having takeaway, drinking food, drinking food, drinking, having food. Um, and because the music was so good, you didn't need a separate soundtrack. That was the soundtrack to a Saturday night. Yeah. And it's the same with SSX Tricky. Um, and uh and and again uh gta you know and i and i remember just um just absolutely loving that saturday night experience and then i remember as a journalist that i can't remember when buzz came out uh but it was between 2003 2005 uh the, the, the quiz buzz? yeah i actually spoke to dan who was uh worked on that about two episodes ago that was one of his right, big things okay. was buzz I loved Buzz, so I got given oh, it he to... he would be delighted to hear that. Well, because as a journalist, it was very difficult. And I had this ongoing tirade uh, at the BBC, which was, why are we not allowed to write about games? So you had this whole kind of... You weren't allowed to do reviews, which I think is quite right, because there were plenty of other places that did reviews of games. Yeah. We, I used to have to report on the chart track, you know, the charts which was the dullest thing to have to try and make. In, I mean, it's interesting, right? But you, don't, you can't really write a story because it's like, oh, this is the top of the chart. This has moved up to two places. You felt like top of the pop. Yeah. Um, you know, it's basically like, here's the chart. Um, but I would try and seek out those stories that I was really interested in. So I did, uh, uh, I, I remember doing um, an interview with Jonathan Fatality Wendell, um, who was one of the first professional uh, esports athletes who made a million. Yeah. And that was in 2003. And I thought out that as a feature piece. You know, I did an interview with him to understand how this kind of world of sponsorship worked with esports. I was really fully aware of esports. It didn't seem strange to me that South Korea had massive audiences because they had 100 meg broadband speeds in 2000. So that combined with PC uh, culture and, and the PC bang which is uh, PC cafes where people just go and play yeah. uh, competitively or just play and train. You know, this was not unusual to me with my interest in internet cafes full stop. You know, I liked to go to those places to hang out. Uh, and as a, as a child or as a teenager, you are regulated out of public space. There aren't very many places to go and hang out. So PC cafes in, in, in terms of what happens in Korea, of course, if we had more of those here, that's where I would be as a teenager. Um, and that's where a lot of teenagers would be instead of careening down the streets on their mopeds as they do in my area. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of natural to me. But I used to seek out these, these kind of stories because I, I, I just couldn't understand why there was an arts and culture and entertainment section on BBC News website and they were allowed to talk about, you know, the newest album released by Björk um, or the, the this amazing theatre, darling, production that had just opened, or this incredible art gallery or exhibition, yet we weren't allowed to talk about games like that. Why Why um, do you think you were such an evangelist? Was it because it was kind of a, a fringe thing? No, because of everything that had led up to that point in my life and my interests, and including and really specifically my PhD, um, in online social virtual worlds and the worlds in which I loved to inhabit. Um, you know, I remember my my other half at the time um, played a lot of Myst 
and I I just thought these were just beautiful, beautiful games. And uh, I I I played Sims. You know, I loved Sims uh, a lot. You know, again, because I was more drawn to those social social virtual worlds, those more kind of sandbox games. Did you ever um, sort of undertake really bizarre social experiments in The Sims, like like everybody? <laughs> to a certain extent, yes. Yeah. But you know, it. Well, we did a um, very interesting uh, commission at Channel Four called Supermees, which uh, we did with something else, a company who's great at this kind of thing, and we basically did an observational documentary. Uh, filming a house of Sims uh, that we created. So Sims being Sims, you know, they, they do what they like. And and then we cut that into kind of eight-minute shorts um, that we tried to get onto E4. And I remember E4 at the time saying, well, we don't do animation. I said, this isn't animation. This is the Sims. And they just didn't understand it. So I think they're still online somewhere, super me's. That sounds really interesting. Um, and that it, was a really interesting social experiment. It's a shame thing. that like TV still doesn't feel like it's moved on very far. That it's still like in, uh, constantly surprised um, that there's so little video game coverage on TV. Like it's at very all. very frustrating. It's very frustrating. But, and um, I think the internet has kind of taken over it. Uh, taken over now. So th there's nothing. I, I mean, I'm sure there's there's probably things they could do, but it's just it's very weird that it's just not happened. Well, what you know, my argument is it's not actually reflecting. It's not actually reflecting mainstream culture anymore. It's not reflecting uh, a mainstream activity that is shaping and influencing generations of people, not just young people. The average age of someone who plays games regularly in this country is thirty-eight or th mid-thirties. Yeah. Uh, in America, you have a large proportion of the game-playing population over fifty. Uh, adult women now out outnumber teenage boys in terms of playing games uh, in the states. And, you know, 52% of those who play games regularly in this country are women. So, you know, it's, it's just missing out on this huge cultural influence. And you only have to go to Comic-Con and NCM Expo and even, you know, EG, EGX to see the influence of this culture bleeding outside of the screen. Oh, you know, absolutely. Our, our fandom and the way that we want to dress up. You know, my, at my 43rd birthday uh, in April, and we, we dressed up as Street Fighter Two characters. And because it's Who did you dress up culture. as? Chung Lee, of course. Of course, of course, of course. Um, but like for for kids now growing up, like I think people like like Stampy Longhead is the equivalent to like you know Philip Schofield when I was a kid. Like they oh, they're God, growing yeah. up on streamers as you know it's not TV anymore. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah, they're both and and I still don't understand why some broadcasters or TV uh, people still think it's a really weird thing i do i constantly do i do a lot of presentations to people a lot of conferences and i do um tend to speak to people who are from the advertising world or uh from tv film world and they still see it as a novelty and then whenever i put up a picture of um uh, pewdiepie nobody knows who it is and i just find that extraordinary <laughs> because when, when i was a commissioner you know even at I fell into my first job after the PhD was BBC Newsround Online. They were looking to integrate, or just to create their online community. Yeah. And I, I just landed a researcher's job. You know, I was paid seven, uh, 18 grand. You know, it's my first job, proper job. And I was delighted. And it was the height of Harry Potter mania. And um, everything that we did, we, writing news for kids is quite challenging. 
and you had to write in very simple language but and concisely. Yeah. We had to 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 also have an interactive thing, at least two interactive things, whether that be a vote, a picture gallery, or a game associated with each of the stories, because that's the thing that would hook kids into reading the story. And so, you know, I commissioned games there. I did Poacher Patrol, which I think is still online. That was my concept. And I, we, we had some uh, uh, designers who just created it in Flash. But, you know, to this day, I still find it incredible that commissioners of content um, aren't, necessarily cur- aren't necessarily curious about these communities and what motivates I've got nieces, so one's nine and one's uh, 15, and the nine-year-old is absolutely adores PewDiePie, but Stampy is her, you know, hero. And of course, I yeah, he's amazing. You know, why, why wouldn't you have that curiosity as a, as, a, as a commissioner of content and experiences to want to understand and to want to try and commission that kind of thing or, 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 or engage with that community? I'm not, saying, I'm not saying none of them do, but I still find it weird that we don't have any any reflection, really, of games culture on mainstream telly. Apart no, from it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So you got this researcher's job. So it feels like you kind of took a, a sideways route into games. Was it ever something that you really wanted to do? Was that something you were passionate about? Like, did you ever think about, oh, I, maybe I can make games or write games or anything like that? Well, like I like I said, I I, I came up with Poacher Patrol, and uh, we had to come up with games concepts uh, on Newsround. But that almost felt like it was a just a way of, of building a community, which it, absolutely it was. Like, so it wasn't. Well, this is it. Yeah. Yes. So I've never really, I, I suppose I've never really separated it out into this thing over here, like the games sector is over here, and I'm over here. Yeah. And that was a bit weird. When I when I got this job, um, I was approached, uh, I was headhunted for this job. And I'd been battling away at BBC and I was in commissioning. And so I was commissioning editor for multi-platform entertainment at BBC uh, after a few other things I did there and elsewhere. And I wasn't allowed to commission games. And I said, but I'm commissioning content on different platforms and it's entertainment content. And even my colleagues in factual or specialist factual, you know, we, we, we all recognized that games were a very, very, very unique way to attract people yeah. to a thing, to get them to, to, to understand something or to purely be entertained. And the problem was that there were multiple problems at BBC, and one was that the commercial arm or BBC Worldwide games were seen as a commercial thing only. And so anything that was commissioned in terms of games would be BBC Worldwide's responsibility, not public service, which was difficult. That's weird. But also um, the BBC was under pressure and uh, games were always seen as as a purely commercial thing that the commercial marketplace looks after, that the BBC, in terms of its public service remit, had no, no, no business being involved in. Which is which is really just culturally biased, uh, cultural bias, you know, and, and just again under misunderstanding that games are another format and another way of experiencing the world or learning about something or just being entertained, and that they're really compelling places for people who are, you know, a community. So it was weird, um, 
I then Alice that's I met Alice at at uh, BBC. She'd commissioned she was actually at BBC Worldwide, but she also commissioned when she was at Creative R and D in public service a big study into because as a journalist I always struggled to find demographics about who plays games in the UK. There was always demographics about who plays games in the States. Yeah. Um, and she actually commissioned a big research study at BBC, which asked the audience in the UK who, who plays games. And that those results were amazing. And I How actually so? wrote... They were just um, really far bigger numbers. And across there was really detailed research across the demographics. And it was the first time as a journalist anyway that I'd had this level of detail and this kind of strength of argument that I could then take later on, you know, a few years down the line, and that was still relevant and say, look, this is where your audience is. There are phenomenal numbers of people across the different demographics who are playing games. And if you as BBC or you as, as a TV as a TV kind of company continue to ignore these people, um, then that's dangerous. Um, she then moved to Channel 4 with Matt Locke, who I also knew very well. Uh, and um, she said, why don't you come over here? Because you're clearly frustrated because you're not allowed to commission games. Yeah. You're not allowed to commission comics. You know, I was just interested in fan culture, full stop. Henry Jenkins um, is a wonderful writer uh, and thinker and theorist who influenced me tremendously around fan cultures and community. Because I just maintain, I suppose that's the sort of common thread throughout my entire life has always been about community and a sense of belonging and fan culture and, and, and what creates fandom and yeah. the loyalty of communities. And, you know, it's always been about that. And that's what, that's what games do really, really well. And so I actually went to Channel 4 and there I joined her as education commissioner. And the strategy at the time was to spend the £4 million budget. It was reduced from £6 million to 90% of what we did was commission games. And that was brilliant. That was my, that was a zenith, I think, for me, because I was, I was interested in reaching these audiences. I was interested in the power of community and the power of games and what it can do to transform people's lives. You know, again, some of the stories that I'd written as a journalist were, I remember this one project by a photographer called Robbie, uh, Rob, Co Robbie Cooper, who yeah. did this um, Alter Egos exhibition. And he went around the world and he was sponsored by PlayStation for his second exhibition to photograph people and their avatars in whatever game or, or, or social virtual world they were, they That's loved. Fun. And, and I, I, he actually photographed my, me and my partner at the time because we were so ingrained in second life culture at the time. <laughs> it was an awful picture, but it is somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in one of those books. But, you know, I was fascinated by this. I covered that twice. Um, uh, as a journalist because one of the guys uh, was a boy who has cystic fibrosis and is wheelchair bound and has to breathe through equipment and he I can't remember what game he played but he, his quality of life was enhanced so much by the fact that he could play or just be in this other world through his computer and um, he had real social ties and real social bonds that were very very strong and he was sort of really released, you know, from the tyranny of his condition, if you like, into this world. And, that is and a wonderful it's, story. It's extraordinary. And that's why I'm really passionate about, I'm a VP now, special effects. Um, oh, of course, yeah, I want to ask about this. 
And uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm very, very passionate about it. Again, you know, access to worlds and access to public life, um, however that is mediated, is so important. And technology plays such a powerful part in creating that kind of access. And games and sandbox and social virtual worlds add on this layer of community and social connections that are hugely important for anyone's mental health and sense of well-being. And so well, this goes back to the fact that you were prescribed your, your very first video game. Yeah, quite possibly. And So actually, you know, no, you should say, like, talk about special effects. So it's a charity for sort of helping people get access to games, essentially. Yeah, and um, they do, they're such a small charity working out of Oxford and they never turn a client away and they sometimes go in, uh, you know, when someone has just, just had a really severe accident uh, and instead of Dr. Mick, who's the CEO, has this wonderful kind of way of explaining it, which is instead of lying in bed staring at the ceiling after a trauma, they are able to go in and uh, bespoke technology. So they have eye gaze technology. They have, um, which is, is probably one of the common kind of technologies they use so that people can even simply control their iPad and they'll suspend the iPad or the, the, the whatever it is above them instead of them staring at the ceiling so that they can actually participate, they can start to play with people again. And once they're recuper recuperating on, and they also, you know, have clients who just have um, degenerative diseases, so they've lived with this all their life. So they'll, again, bespoke technology at different stages because most of the time they are de degenerative diseases. Yeah. So they can um, work with people who have very limited movement and one chap who plays Minecraft just with an eyebrow sensor. So he just plays it with his eyebrow. Um, other other technology that they've uh, adapted so that people can play FIFA just using their chin. It depends on the type of movement uh, or the limitations of movement yeah. they have. They'll sometimes take um, just take a controller and take all the unnecessary parts out so that um, some of the, the, the young people they work with who have just difficulty lifting a normal controller can actually lift a much lighter controller and so they can still play and they can play with their friends and they can just be normal for once. Yeah, and stuff like um, that is, is amazing. I think not just to sort of enable people to, to feel like part of a community, but I think for other people to see this person and, and see the full range of their personality, which perhaps they can't express in any other way. Um, there's like, I, I don't know if you ever saw, there was This American Life did a, a TV series, a very brief TV series, and one of the episodes was about a kid's and I, I can't remember what was wrong with him, but he couldn't um, he, he couldn't move at all. He was he lived through machines essentially, and all he could move was his like one of his little fingers. But he was able to still communicate online, and he was hilarious. And so, for the purpose of the show, they they said they were going to use a voiceover, and he said, "Well, I'll only accept Johnny Depp." Um, so they they so they got Johnny Depp, and Johnny Depp sort of was this this kid's voice through the episode, and he was like just really funny and really sharp, and you know you That's you don't amazing. think that when you look at him, obviously because you just you, you feel sorry for him, but he was just really funny and really um, disarming. It was just it was amazing. So giving people the potential to do that and and helping people around them remember like oh this is this is my friend, like he's really funny. I like hanging out with him, you know. Exactly. So, and that is incredibly important. And it goes against and games, games and 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 kind of 
online worlds have always gone against the prevailing notion in mainstream media, which is about social disconnection and about, uh, you know, being solitary and a, a gamer as being someone who's stuck in the basement and doesn't socialize. And it's the exact opposite. And it just shows, again, the fundamental lack of understanding of what, you know, what community is about or what social bonds or what empowerment and what kind of confidence you can gain when you achieve something in a game. You know, particularly when if you if you might not be achieving uh, because of certain I don't know ways in which we measure achievement in in sort of societal structures, and and that's where this whole kind of idea of, of, of sort of you know I hate the term gamification, and I don't like what has happened to that. You know, people who've borrowed this kind of achievement bit of what you get when you play games. Or, I feel like that's you know, kind of died off a little bit recently. Uh, well, it's not so talked about in in mainstream press, but it hasn't died off. You know, you still I'm still involved in conversations where people think that that's the solution to society's problems or getting people to do stuff. But I mean, that that's not kind of you know, it's it, it may have died off slightly, but it's it is still there. People still think that okay, what people are getting out of playing games is is the point. No, it's not. <laughs> it 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 is still there, believe it or not. Um, so, um, but, no, but special effect, yeah, special effect to me is 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 really important because it is about kind of also thinking of ways to mainstream this kind of technology and and these technical solutions, which is why I'm really excited about virtual reality and augmented reality, but virtual reality in particular because it's my dream. It's been my dream in social, um, in all my social uh, science research. It's my kind of dream because I've loved sci-fi for so long. It's my dream because I can see the empowerment that occupying a different kind of world or having access to a way of understanding an engine or a cell or how atoms work because you, you can actually break down, break down that fourth wall and walk into an atom. You know, so the, the potential for education, the potential for people with disabilities, the potential for just participating in 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 worlds that we've never dreamt possible before is huge, um, and I can't wait to see that. I was going to ask if if you know you were still excited about about games now, but clearly you're you're more excited than ever because of this new potential. Oh, absolutely, and 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 even when you look at some of the amazing games coming out of the UK, you know, and thank God we've stopped using that horrible term casual games for mobile games because uh, I always found that incredibly patronising. Um, <laughs> After and, throwing, throwing controllers across the room. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, you're seeing now this whole diversity of different kinds of games and different genres and different kinds of games offering you different experiences depending on what kind of mood you're in. You know, and you look at these masterpieces like Everybody's Gone to the Rapture coming out of the UK and I just i am so excited by the future uh, but I still think we've got quite a long way to go to secure the future economically for games um, and to, you know, get parity of support from other uh, bodies that, that dole out public money, you know, to fund films and television. I think you're either going to do that across the sectors, which includes games, or don't do it at all because it's not recognising games as as an important art form and 
way of expression um, as they should be considered in the same way as films and as you're recognizing films and TV. So that is still a big kind of chunk of work that needs to be done. Well, luckily, you're you're very competitive, Joe. So it's it'll yeah. be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I just challenged them to a game of Street Fighter too. <laughs>